0: It's good to see you here this morning, and I invite you to take your copy of Scripture and turn to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. Acts 14, and I'll begin reading for us in verse 8, and uh, we'll read through to verse 23. So Acts chapter 14, beginning in verse 8. This is God's Word. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet and he sprang up and began walking and when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, men, why are you doing these things? Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. Verse 21. Let's pray. Father, it's uh, such an encouraging and powerful thing to read here of the proclamation of the gospel by the Apostle Paul in the first century and uh, those who were first believers in Lystra and how their lives were transformed and changed. And Lord, we thank You for the example of Paul and we thank You for the example of Barnabas. We thank You, Lord, that this work that they did so many centuries ago has flourished and thrived and uh, we know the blessing of their efforts even uh, now today and so father we pray that you would help us to learn from them and father we pray that we ourselves would be faithful ambassadors of the lord jesus that we would take the gospel to the nations and that we would build your church for your glory Do this now, Lord, by Your Spirit as we look to Your Word. Lead us and guide us into all truth. And may we be faithful disciples of Jesus. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. Well, our mission as a church is to glorify God by making disciples who enjoy, live, and proclaim the gospel. And currently, as many of you know, we are in a series in which we're thinking about this idea of glorifying God by proclaiming the gospel. And we've been considering this theme as we've been looking at Paul's first missionary journey in Acts chapters 13 and 14. And most recently, we've been talking about Paul's ministry in the city of Lystra. Now, as we just read, Paul heals a crippled man in the city of Lystra... And as a result, the citizens of the city want to worship Paul and Barnabas as gods. Paul and Barnabas here refuse their worship. And uh, then a group of opponents from neighboring cities where Paul and Barnabas had ministered previously, they come to Lystra and they turn the crowds against Paul and Barnabas. So... In a surprising turn of events, the citizens of Lystra in one moment want to worship Paul and Barnabas' as gods, and then in the next, they want to stone them as criminals. As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago when we were looking at this passage, I believe the key to understanding the latter verses here, verses 19 through 23, is found in verse 22, when Paul and Barnabas declare that it is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. And we saw in verse 19 that Paul himself experienced tribulation. Paul experienced tribulation on his way to the kingdom, when he was stoned and dragged out of the city of Lystra and left for dead. And then in verse 20 we saw that God sustained Paul through that tribulation, as God preserved Paul's life, And as he ministered to Paul through the disciples who gathered around him and cared for him. But the focus of our passage this morning, verses 21 to 23, is not Paul's tribulations, but rather the tribulations of these new Christians who through Paul's ministry have recently come to faith in Jesus. These new Christians in Antioch, and in Iconium, and in Lystra, and in Derbe, these cities where Paul and Barnabas have preached the gospel, and they've been expelled from these cities. These new Christians were left behind after Paul and Barnabas left, after Paul and Barnabas were pushed out of the city. They were left behind, and they had... Probably to continue to endure the scorn and rejection and persecution of the citizens of those cities. So in verse 19 we see that Paul himself endured tribulation. In verse 20 we saw that God sustained Paul through that tribulation. But now in verses 21-23 to we see that Paul turns and he strengthens others in their tribulation. Now this is important for us to see if we want to be a church that faithfully proclaims the gospel and makes disciples of all nations. In verse 21 we read, look there in the text, we see when they had preached the gospel in that city, that's the city of Derby, and had made many disciples. Now you see, that's what we want to do. That's what we're talking about this morning, Right? That's our mission as a church. We want to glorify God by making disciples. And here they are. This is what Paul and Barnabas are doing in Derby and in Antioch and in Iconium and in Lystra. They are making disciples of Jesus. But then the question arises, okay, well when we're faithful to share Christ with others, when we're faithful to preach the gospel, and some do in fact believe, they trust in Christ, now what? How do we care for those who become disciples in Jesus so that they faithfully endure tribulation and ultimately receive the priceless treasure of the kingdom of God? Now, verse chapter 14 in the book of Acts does not maybe answer that question completely, but it definitely points us in the right direction. And what I want us to see in our verses this morning is that Paul and Barnabas take Two steps, two main steps to care for these new Christians and to strengthen them in their tribulation. The first step is they return to visit them. And the second step is they commit them to the Lord. So they return to visit them. And then secondly, they commit them to the Lord. Now let's look at each. First of all, look there in verse 21 and 22. We read these words. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, Paul and Barnabas had been run out of each one of these cities that are mentioned here in verse 21. So in Antioch, if you just look back a little bit further in the uh, text there, you'll see in chapter 13, verse 50, we read, But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing, and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. So they were driven out of Antioch. Then if you look at chapter 14, verse 5, you see that in Iconium, we read, an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them. So they're driven out of Iconium. Then look here in chapter 14, verse 19, and in Lystra we read, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. And now we read in our text this morning that in another surprising turn of events, Paul and Barnabas decide to return to each of these cities. Now some may view Paul and Barnabas returning as them going back into the lion's den. Some might argue, you barely escaped the first time. Why would you dare go back again? In addition, it's also interesting to note that their means of travel and transportation did not require that they retrace their steps back through these cities. So sometimes, you know, given the roads or given you know the, the, the means of travel, maybe you go one way and the only way to get back home is to go right back the other, you know, that same way. You have to retrace your steps. But that's not the case in this situation. In fact, if you look at your bulletin, uh, John Ross did an excellent job of designing our bulletin cover here. And you see the title of our series, Sent to Proclaim. And if you follow, this is the map of Paul and Barnabas's first missionary journey. It's up there on the screen as well. If you follow the orange arrows, orange arrows that's hard for me to say, you will see um, Paul and Barnabas leaving on the far right... The arrow on the bottom, they leave from Antioch in Syria. They go over to the island of Cyprus. They go north, and you see they port there. And then they go further north, and the furthest orange arrow at the very top, that's Antioch. That's Antioch in Pisidia. Then they come down. They go to Iconium. They come down again. They go to Lystra. Then they shoot over to the right. That arrow going to the east, the far right, that's Derby. That's their last stop on the first missionary journey. Now from Derby if you look they can go south landwise and they can go through that region down there at the bottom Cilicia Cilicia is actually the region where Paul's hometown is Tarsus so Paul could have maybe visited family friends on his way back to Antioch where they started so they could have traveled landwise down south back to Antioch but instead they don't do that that was the easier route that was the quicker route But instead they go back. And the purple arrows, I guess those are purple, pink, whatever that is. Those arrows are the ways back. They go back to the cities that they originally visited and then come back down to Antioch. Now why did they do this? Why did they choose this route, this more difficult route? Because they're concerned about these new believers. These new disciples who have trusted in Christ, who are now living in these cities in which there is a hostile environment and they are consistently facing opposition. We see as well in our text that Paul will go on uh, to strengthen them and to encourage them. This is his desire. He wants to support and encourage these new believers. It's also worth noting that Paul will go on to visit these same towns again in his second missionary journey, which you can read about in chapter 16, verses 1 to 6. And he visits them again on his third missionary journey, which you can read about in chapter 18, verse 23. So here, Paul and Barnabas teach us an important truth, namely that evangelism is only the beginning of the missionary task. Faithful missionaries will invest in the ongoing discipleship and maturity of those who come to faith in Christ. Let me repeat that. Evangelism is only the beginning of the missionary task. Faithful missionaries will invest in the ongoing discipleship and maturity of those who come to faith in Jesus. Now many of you know that our church takes very seriously the Lord's command to be fruitful and multiply. And uh, it's wonderful. We are always announcing new babies in our church. And we're very grateful for that. But we also recognize as Christians we're not only commanded to produce physical offspring, but also spiritual offspring as well. The Lord has commanded us to make disciples of all nations. And just as with the physical birth of a child, a father and mother's responsibility does not end there. In many ways, it's just beginning, right? The child is born. Now you have to care for them and nurture them and provide for them and see them grow up into maturity. And the same is true in the spiritual world. For spiritual fathers and mothers, when we see someone come to faith in Christ, when one's a babe in Christ, in many ways our responsibility is just beginning We're not to leave them to fend for themselves, but rather we are to nurture and instruct and care for and encourage. A few months ago, I read a book on international missions that is entitled No Shortcut to Success. It's written by Matt Rhodes. And the concern of the author is that in many of the models of missionary work today, they are too concerned with immediate and rapid growth. In fact, many of the text that you'll read today on missionary philosophies of ministry and so forth, they'll use that language a lot. Rapid growth. That's what we're after, rapid growth. But when immediate and rapid results become the primary aim of missions, then oftentimes the longer and slower work of discipleship and maturity is neglected or altogether ignored. You see, if Paul and Barnabas here were only concerned about rapid growth, immediate growth, They would have been inclined to move on to other cities and other regions. They would have concluded that there was new and more urgent work to be done where Christ had not yet been proclaimed. They would have refused to be slowed down by these new and immature believers. They would have pressed on into new frontiers. And we know that Paul was burdened to do so. We know that Paul would go on to new frontiers. But in doing so, he didn't leave these new Christians behind. Instead, the title of the book actually that I just mentioned is No Shortcut to Success. And in Acts chapter 14, what we see is that Paul and Barnabas literally opt to not take a shortcut back home through Cilicia in order that they might take the longer, slower route back to Antioch and be able to invest in these new believers. In other words, they took time to solidify their gains, to strengthen to encourage, to disciple, to teach, to appoint leaders. Because they understood that rapidity or rapid results is oftentimes the enemy of faithful, healthy, enduring church growth. Now notice when they returned, what did they do specifically? If you look there in the text, you'll see that when they returned, they both strengthened and they encouraged. Now let's think about both of these ideas briefly. You notice that they strengthened. Look there in verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to like Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Here it is, verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples. Now that word there that is used for strengthen is episterizo. It means to cause someone to become stronger, more firm, to strengthen. The word is used four times in the Bible And every single occurrence takes place in the book of Acts. And here's the really interesting thing. Each time the word occurs in the book of Acts, it describes believers strengthening others through their physical presence. So let me just give you a few examples here. We see it here in verse uh, 22 of our text. So in verse 21, we see that they returned to Lystra, and then we see they were in our text, verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples. So they, or they returned to all these cities, actually. So they returned to these cities, and in returning with their physical presence, right, they strengthened the souls of the disciples. And then if we go on to chapter 15, Acts chapter 15, we see there that the apostles who were in Jerusalem, they choose two men, Judas and Silas as representatives of the Jerusalem council, and they send them out from Jerusalem, actually to these churches here in this region, to give them a message. And in Acts chapter 15, verse 32, we read, And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. So they were sent from Jerusalem, and as they come and they are present with them, they strengthen them. And then in Acts chapter 15, verse 41, we see that Paul sets out with Silas on his second missionary journey. And we read there in Acts chapter 15, verse 41, and he went through Syria and Cilicia. So he's physically going through Syria, he's physically going through Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And then one final example in Acts chapter 18, verse 32, we see there that Paul begins his third missionary journey. And we read, After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So he went from one place to the next. He's physically traveling there, physically present with the churches, and he is strengthening them. I remember when I was a young man and I was preparing for pastoral ministry and uh, was a little bit nervous about the challenges that laid ahead for me. Uh, I asked my grandfather, who was a retired minister at that time, I asked him, you know, when when tragedy strikes and you have to go visit a family, maybe a a child has passed away or a spouse has died, what do you say? What do you say in those moments where people are just overwhelmed with grief? And I remember my grandfather telling me very wisely, oftentimes you don't say anything. You just be there. You just be present and you pray. And isn't it true that oftentimes our presence is more powerful than our words? None of us, of course, are omnipresent. We can't be everywhere at all times with every people. That's not true of an apostle. It's not true of a pastor. It's not true of any faithful Christian But here there was a slice of time where Paul and Barnabas had the opportunity to be present with these churches. And they took the opportunity to be present with them and they strengthened them by their presence. And we can imagine for these young believers who were surrounded in a hostile environment, we can imagine how encouraging, how uplifting it must have been for them when they saw Paul and Barnabas walking back into their city to be with them to be present with them, to spend time with them. They must have thought when Paul and Barnabas were run out of these cities, they'll never come back, right? And here they come to be with them. My friends, we can strengthen one another with our presence. We can strengthen others with our presence. With our presence, we can strengthen a young believer who's just learning the ropes. With our presence, we can strengthen an elderly believer who is lonely and looking for companionship. With our presence, we can strengthen a missionary who is on the field, who is thousands of miles away from home. It's one of the reasons why our intention is to begin to send an elder periodically out to our missionaries who are members of our church so that they might visit them and be with them. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his classic book, Life Together, speaks about the ministry of presence. And he writes these words, quote, The physical presence of other Christians is a source of incomparable joy and strength to the believer. The believer feels no shame as though he were still living too much in the flesh when he yearns for the physical presence of other Christians. The prisoner The sick person, the Christian in exile, sees in the companionship of a fellow Christian a physical sign of the gracious presence of the triune God. It is easily forgotten that the fellowship of Christian brethren is a gift of grace, a gift of the kingdom of God that any day may be taken from us, that the time that still separates us from utter loneliness may be brief indeed. Therefore, let him who now has had the privilege of living in common life, Christian life with other Christians, praise God's grace from the bottom of his heart. Let him thank God on his knees and declare, it is grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in community with Christian brethren." End of quote. Paul and Barnabas strengthened these churches with their presence. Not only that, when they returned, they not only strengthen them, but they encouraged them. Look there in the text. We read verse 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, here it is, encouraging them in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So, we see here that they encouraged them. And they encouraged them particularly, Luke records, by declaring to them that it is through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, some of you might say, that doesn't sound very encouraging. But think about it from their context. It is encouraging if you are in fact enduring tribulation. Remember, Paul is speaking to these young Christians who live in towns where the citizens of these towns are known to ostracize and stone and kill followers of Jesus. They're daily living under the tension and stress of this opposition. And this is why Paul is encouraging them to remain in the faith. He's encouraging them to persevere. We can imagine at times, given the environment in which they live, they might be thinking to themselves, Maybe we aren't followers of Jesus. Maybe we missed it. Maybe Jesus isn't with us. Maybe Jesus isn't for us. Because if Jesus was really with us and He was for us, then surely I wouldn't find myself in this situation. And Paul comes back and he reminds them, no, I see your sufferings. And you are in fact on the right path. Remember the words of Jesus. If anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross daily and follow me. Your tribulations, your sufferings are your cross. And your tribulations and your sufferings, therefore, do not negate your faith, but they validate your genuine faith in the Lord Jesus. You are on the path to the kingdom. Of course, my friends, we need to clarify, it's not in any way that our persecutions or tribulations save us. It's not as though we suffer so many tribulations and so many persecutions and we gain for ourselves favor or earn merit for ourselves so that then we might enter the kingdom of God. No, it's only the sufferings of Jesus that can save us. Jesus suffered and He bled and He died on the cross for our sins so that we might be forgiven and have eternal life. And the only way that we can be saved is through faith and His atoning work on the cross. But what Paul is pointing out here and what the Lord Jesus teaches us is that if we follow Jesus in faith, if we follow Him in obedience in this broken and sinful world, then like Jesus, we will also endure persecutions and tribulations in this life. But be encouraged, as Paul teaches us here, persecutions and tribulations for the sake of Jesus finally give way to the kingdom. And where would Paul get this idea? How would Paul know this? Of course, he learned it from Jesus himself. Listen to the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 6, verse 22, blessed are you. When people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man, rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. Or as the Apostle Paul says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Some of you here this morning need to hear this word. You need to be encouraged by this word. Perhaps you have a spouse who resents your faith and mocks you for your devotion to Jesus and His church. Or maybe there's a group of co-workers who shun you and exclude you because of your biblical convictions. Or perhaps your parents are frustrated with you for the way in which your Christian convictions have influenced how you spend your time and serve with your money. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul this morning and be encouraged. It is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. In other words, the cross leads to the crown. Death will give way to life. And the sufferings for Jesus' sake will ultimately result in everlasting joy in the kingdom of of God. Paul and Barnabas, they care for these young Christians by returning to them. And they return to them so that they might strengthen them with their presence. And they might encourage them by reminding them of the way of the cross and the hope of the kingdom. Notice secondly though that they commit them to the Lord. They commit them to the Lord. Look there in verse 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So the main verb here in verse 23 is committed. They committed them to the Lord. So Paul and Barnabas had returned, but they could not stay forever. The Lord had called them to do further work in other places. And so they return to strengthen them. They returned to encourage them. But now they must pursue further missionary travels. And so, given their upcoming departure, they commit these young believers to the Lord. Now notice again how they commit them to the Lord. So when they returned, they strengthened and encouraged. But now when they commit them to the Lord, notice that they appoint and they pray. They appoint and they pray. First of all, you see there in verse 23, they appointed elders for them in every church. Now, here we see, and listen, we're a church that wants to glorify God by proclaiming the gospel, and we're a church that loves missions, and we want to see the gospel go to the nations. And by God's grace, we've had a number of folks that we've been able to send out from our church, even this last year, to the missionary field, and we're so grateful for that. And we want to learn how to do missions from the Bible. Where's our guide? Where's our pattern for how we are to proclaim Christ to the nations? It's here. It's in the book of Acts. It's in the Bible. And what we see here in our text is a pattern that is repeated again and again in the book of Acts. In each of the cities that Paul ministered, in each of the cities in which he was blessed with converts, Paul established a church. Do you see it there in the text in verse 23? In every church. And what we learned here is that the goal of international missions is not just individual converts, but the goal of missions is the establishment of local churches. And that should be our goal as well. Roland Allen in 1912 wrote a classic on um, missionary work It's entitled, Missionary Methods, St. Paul's or Ours. And listen to his words. He says, quote, The first and most striking difference between Paul's actions and ours is that he founded churches, but we found missions. Nothing can alter or disguise the fact that St. Paul did leave behind him at his first complete visit churches, Indeed, in little more than ten years, Paul established the church in four provinces of the empire, Galatia, Macedonia, Achaia, and Asia. Before A.D. 47, there were no churches in these provinces. In A.D. 57, Paul could speak as if his work there was done, end of quote. And the reason why Paul would say in these provinces his work was done after ten years is because in each of these provinces he had planted a church. And it makes sense, doesn't it? Because Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so when Paul goes to do missions, when he goes to proclaim Christ, his intent is to establish churches. How will these young Christians... Continue in their faith. Long after Paul and Barnabas have moved on. It will be through the fellowship of the church. It will be through the pastoral care of godly elders. It will be through biblical teaching in the community of faith. It will be through mutual commitment with brothers and sisters in Christ. In other words, it will be through the church. And how will the larger cities and regions in this area be reached with the gospel? It will be through these churches. These churches that are established will become like beachheads in those communities, from which the mission will then be supported and advanced. And more and more in those areas will come to faith in Christ. This was clearly Paul's strategy, his missionary strategy, because it was the strategy of the Lord Jesus Himself. Christ declares, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And notice that in each of these churches, they appointed elders. Now it's worth noting that they appointed elders, that is plural, there was more than one elder. In every church, each church singular. It seems it's what's being communicated here is that each individual church had a plurality of elders. We have a plurality of elders here at Crawford Avenue Baptist Church. You've seen several of them up on the stage this morning. John was leading music and Stephen led us in prayer. There's other elders here in our congregation. Sometimes folks ask, why do you have a plurality of elders at Crawford Avenue? Well, this is the reason. This seems to be the consistent pattern that we see in the New Testament church in terms of how the church is to be ordered and how it is to be led. The church is to be led by a plurality of biblically qualified men who serve as elders in each individual local congregation. And these men have the responsibility to teach and to pray and to lead and to care for Christ's church. So in 2002, when I became the pastor of Berea Baptist Church, a local church here in our area, I was the only elder or pastor of the church, and our constitution allowed for a board of deacons as well. After several years, we rewrote our constitution to allow for a plurality of elders. And some of these men, they receive their full-time employment from the church, as I do, but there are a number of men who do not. They have jobs outside of the church and then they serve as lay elders in the church and we serve as a team together. When Berea Baptist Church and Crawford Avenue Baptist Church merged in 2015, both churches determined that the newly merged church would adopt this model of leadership and we would continue to be led by a plurality of elders. I believe our church has been really served well by this model and I think it is, in fact, the model that we see in the New Testament. But notice here that when Paul considered how he was to commit these new believers to the Lord, so he's going to be leaving, right? He's going to be moving on to other missionary journeys, missionary endeavors, but he's got these new Christians. He's encouraged them. He's strengthened them. But how is it that he can commit them to the Lord long term so that they will remain steadfast in the faith, so that they will weather the storms, of tribulation and persecution so that they will arrive safely in the kingdom of heaven. Paul determined, this is the way I will commit them to the Lord. I will gather them into a church and I will appoint elders to watch over and care for their souls. Now, my friends, that should teach us something very important about our own Christian lives. It should teach us something very important about the mission of the church. It should teach us that our Christian lives are to be lived out in the context and community of the church. It is for our own spiritual growth and maturity. It is for our own preservation as Christians. And it teaches us that our goal as a church is to plant other churches where Christ has not been named so that other believers might be strengthened and encouraged and sustained and so that these churches might continue to proclaim the gospel to more people and in new places. This is God's missionary strategy. Notice, not only did they appoint elders for them in every church, but they also prayed for them. So this is how they committed them to the Lord. They appointed and they prayed. Look there in verse 23. And when they appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting... They committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. We're coming to the end here of Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey. Actually, in a couple of weeks, we'll consider the last passage that we're going to be looking at here in Acts chapter 14. But we notice here that Paul and Barnabas' last act on the missionary field reminds us of the first action that was taken prior to them being sent out from their home church in Antioch. Do you remember the first action that was taken before they were sent out from their church in Antioch? If you look back at chapter 13, verse 3, we read, Then after fasting and praying, they, that is their church in Antioch, their home church, laid hands on them, that is on Paul and Barnabas, and sent them off. So the church in Antioch committed Paul and Barnabas and their missionary efforts to the Lord with prayer and fasting. And now, having completed their first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas commit these new churches to the Lord with prayer and fasting. Of course, we know that Paul will go on to continue to pray for these churches because we have... Any number of letters in the New Testament where Paul wrote to churches that he had planted or that he continued to minister to, and repeatedly Paul reminds them that he is praying for them, that he will continue to pray for them, that he bows his knees before his Father in heaven and he prays for them. And so as Paul's first missionary journey begins with prayer and fasting, and as it ends with prayer and fasting, it is a reminder to us that the work of proclaiming the gospel, whether here or abroad, must be covered from beginning to end with fervent prayer. So how do we care for new Christians? How do we care for those who have become disciples in Jesus so that they may faithfully endure tribulation and ultimately receive the priceless treasure of the kingdom? We return to them. We don't leave them out there to fend for themselves, to make their own way. Rather, we seek to strengthen them with our presence. We seek to encourage them as we remind them of the way of the cross and the hope of the kingdom. And then we commit them to the Lord as we entrust them to a faithful, biblical, local church. And as we continue to pray for their spiritual growth and eternal good. I wonder, is there someone that you need to return to, that you need to visit? Is there someone that you need to strengthen with your presence? Is there someone you need to encourage with the hope of the kingdom? These tribulations are only momentary. We're on our way to the kingdom. Is there someone that you need to admonish to commit to a local church where they can live in the community of faith? Is there someone that you need to pray with and for to encourage them in their Christian life? My friends, this is how we care for one another. This is how we care for new Christians. This is how we grow and mature in the faith and advance the Gospel. And as we do so, may Christ, in His grace and mercy, build His church and advance His kingdom through us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank You and praise You for Your Word, and we are so grateful for this record of the growth of the early church in the book of Acts. But Father, we thank You for the opportunity that You have given us to make disciples of all nations. And Lord, we are grateful as well that You have not just given us this directive, but Lord, You have shown us again and again in Your Word how it is, in fact, to be played out. So Father, we ask that by Your grace we would be faithful to the pattern that You have given us. Lord, help us to love and care for one another well, to encourage and to strengthen. Help us, Lord, to be faithful to Your church and to advance and encourage participation and involvement in the life of your body and lord help us to be faithful in prayer lord through these things we pray that we ourselves would grow and we pray lord that we would be the means of growth for others lord we're so thankful for brooks and for your grace in his life and how you have saved him lord we thank you for his testimony that he's coming now to share that testimony with us to be baptized and to join officially this fellowship here, this body where he can learn and grow and mature as a disciple of Jesus. Father, we thank You that even this morning, our gathering, our worship, this baptism that is about to take place is a testimony that Christ is building His church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Lord, we ask that You would continue to do this work in and through us. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray.